I'd like you to take out your handout on atonement and then thoughts on atonement statements. And we're going to start with number 12. The thoughts on atonement statements is a new handout. And what we're trying to do is harmonize statements that seem radically different in Ellen White from the document that we read originally. And those of you who are new, fairly new, I would really recommend you read that document through. It's a commentary on uh, the chapter, It Is Finished in Desire of Ages. Uh, make an excellent Sabbath afternoon reading. <laughs> uh, because that document is foundational to all of our discussion here. And it'll, things will make much more sense uh, as we move through, if you've read it. So uh, what I'd like to do is begin with number 12, and we'll read it again, just so that we have it fresh in our minds. His, that is Christ's, object was to reconcile the prerogatives of justice and mercy and let each stand in its separate, in its its dignity, yet united. His mercy was not weakness, but a terrible power to punish sin because it is sin yet a power to draw it to the love of humanity. Through Christ, justice is enabled to forgive without sacrificing one jot of its exalted holiness. Justice and mercy stood apart, in opposition to each other, separated by a wide gulf. The Lord our Redeemer clothed his divinity with humanity and wrought out in behalf of man a character that was without spot or blemish. He planted his cross midway between heaven and earth and made it the object of attraction which reached both ways, drawing both justice and mercy across the gulf. Justice moved from its exalted throne and with all the armies of heaven approached the cross. There it saw one, equal with God, bearing the penalty for all injustice and sin. With perfect satisfaction, Justice bowed in reverence at the cross, saying, It is enough. Okay. Uh, What this sounds like is that justice and mercy are indeed in opposition to each other. That what Ellen White said in Desire of Ages, that it was Satan's claim that they were in opposition, is not quite true. They really are in opposition. That's, that's what this statement seems to say. And what has been happening in Adventist theological circles is that if it says it differently in one place than another, we pick which one we want and cancel out the other instead of trying to harmonize and, and explain one statement in light of another. Um, so... What I'm going to try to do is, is give a suggested explanation for what she means here. Uh, I looked up the word prerogatives just for the sake of definition. It means special rights or powers. So it was Christ's object to reconcile the special rights or powers of justice and mercy. And, of course, right there, she's capitalizing justice and mercy to kind of personify them. And the question is, and jumping down now to uh, the third paragraph here on your handout, justice and mercy stood apart in opposition to each other, separated by a wide gulf. I, I ask the question, why does she capitalize them? Are they personifications of God the Father and God the Son? 
which is, I think, historically, the way many people have viewed this, is that justice really represents the father and, and mercy represents the son. It's sort of like in a family, a, a fairly dysfunctional family, may I add, <laughs> where dad lays down the law and mom intercedes. Please, please don't spank Johnny this time. Uh, it, it's kind of that portrayal of the father and the son. So, if, if, but if that's true, if, it, if these are personifications of the father and the son, then what about Jesus' prayer in John 17? That they may be one as we are one. I and them and thou and me, that they may be one. Uh, Jesus makes it very clear there that he and the Father are one. And, and that's a theme in the, in the Gospel of John. He says it several places, I and the Father are one. Uh, if that's the case, yes, go ahead. So then to try to personify God and Jesus as justice and mercy and to call those mutually exclusive almost seems to have a kind of paradox in it if we're calling the Trinity as uh, harmonious. And I think that's how many people state it, is that it, it is a paradox. It is, it is and, and they like to let that stand. It is, it, God is paradoxical. Let's face it. That's the way it is. Um, but if, if we read, if we think about everything in the Bible, uh, everything that... In, in Desire of Ages that said about the father and son and their relationships, I don't think that can stand. I don't think that can stand the evidence. Uh, so um, moving then to this concept of mercy. How is mercy a terrible power to punish sin because it is sin? And why does she say because it is sin? Why is that a reason for it to be able to punish well, she says, His mercy was not weakness, but a terrible power to punish sin. And the reason it's a terrible power to punish sin, because it is sin. Why did she give that reason? Because it is sin. Or is she saying that's the motive? Because it's sin, he has to punish it. And I think that's how many people would read it. But I, I wonder if there isn't a deeper meaning here. It's a terrible power to punish sin because it is sin, because of the nature of sin and what it is. And, and we'll work this out as, as we move. So one way to look at this is the way I think last time that I suggested Mercy lets go of condemnation and guilt. That equals forgiveness, right? We, we understand that to be the property of mercy. But it is all, and it is a power to draw it to the love of humanity. But moving back up on the, on the handout, mercy also lets people have their own way and their choice. And that equals wrath. And once a person... Uh, let's, once mercy lets go, you can have your own way. I'm not going to hogtie you to me. See, mercy wants to restore and forgive. Mercy wants to draw humanity to itself. But then this is why I think Ellen White in Desire of Ages and other places repeatedly talks about the wicked as the rejectors of his mercy. 
and and I think she's drawing there on Romans Romans 2. In fact, I don't know if you have your Bibles. Let's review this. Romans chapter 2 and uh, let's start let's start with verse 1. Paul's very hard to break into the middle of. <laughs> he, once he gets on a roll, it's just like where do you stop? <laughs> You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. And we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience is all merciful attributes. Not realizing that God's kindness, is, which equals his mercy in a sense, is intended to lead you to repentance. So that's, that's what mercy does. It draws people to itself. That is, the love of God draws it, people in. And especially as exemplified in mercy. But... Verse 5, because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath. And I'm going to change my version here. The Greek can read in yourselves. In yourselves for the day of God's wrath. And it's actually the day of wrath, I believe, in the Greek, not the day of God's wrath. When his, his, his righteous judgment will be revealed God will repay everyone according to what they have done. And that sounds to me like Romans 6, the sowing and reaping uh, metaphor, where you reap what you sow, what you do comes back on you. That's natural consequences. So what I see happening in Romans 2 is that those who reject God's mercy and refuse to come to repentance, the alternate to letting the love of God, the mercy of God, draw them in. The, the ultimate result of that is they have nowhere to go but anger and wrath. And so they store this up in themselves until the day when, when God finally lets them go and lets them have their choice. All of that anger spews out into violence toward other people and in internal I believe internal combustion, actually, that actually is self-destructive. I, I believe we do not ever, when people get angry, I don't think they ever experience uh, the results, the, the full results of that anger. I think God restrains it. I think he restrains the consequences, hoping that they will get to know him and, and their attitude will change. So, so this is what I think is happening here and therefore when when God lets people have their own way it is wrath it is the wrath of, that's how God's wrath is is letting people go as, as Romans 1 expresses but it's also wrath in them and what I would like to suggest too is uh, Desire of Ages and I have this here on the handout here in the middle Desire of Ages 764 says, The glory of him who is love 
will destroy them. And you remember how she, she talks about, well, maybe we should go back to the other handout. Let's pause so we all rattle our pages together. And in that original handout of Desire of Ages, this, she says, this, which refers to the previous paragraph, which is the destruction of Satan and his followers. This is not an act of arbitrary power on the part of God. The rejectors of his mercy, note she uses that term, reap that which they have sown. God is the fountain of life, and when one chooses the service of sin, he separates from God and thus cuts himself off from life. So this is, this is not something God does arbitrarily. It is the natural consequences of sin. He is alienated from the life of God. And I'm going to jump down to the next line. God gives them existence for the time that they may develop their character and reveal their principles. This accomplished, they receive the results of their own choice. By a life of rebellion, Satan and all who unite with him place themselves so out of harmony with God that his very presence is to them a consuming fire. The glory of him who is love will destroy them. Now that refers back to something else in the Bible. And that's in Exodus 33. And we will start with verse 18. And he said, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And he said, Thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and thou shalt stand upon a rock. And it shall come to pass, while my glory passeth by, that I will put thee in the cleft of a rock, and will cover thee with my hand while I pass by. And I will take away mine hand, and thou shalt see my back parts, but my face shall not be seen. Okay, so what is this about not being able to see God's face? And in order to really understand and appreciate this, you have to understand ancient Near Eastern gestures. Gestures are a very important part of communication in the ancient Near East. And um, and when you went before a king or a very high-up official, if the king refused to let you see his face, what was that a sign of? Condemnation. Condemnation. Disfavor. You're not in my favor. I will show you no mercy. So, presumably, if a person who had offended the king stood in his presence and the king turned his face away, that person would know they were going to die. Uh, turning the back, I, and, and I have to parallel this with animal behavior. If you've ever had a cat... You know that when a cat turns the back on you, and they do it very deliberately, uh, they're saying, I, I object to what you're doing. I'm, you're out of my favor. I don't like you. <laughs> I'm mad at you, etc., etc. That's that kind of thing. And, and in the ancient Near Eastern understanding, the face meant mercy. If I let you see my face, I am showing you my favor. I am showing you my mercy. 
So seeing the face is mercy. Seeing the backside of God is wrath. The turning away. You see, if God puts Moses in the cleft of the rock and he passes by. He doesn't let Moses see his face. Moses only sees him as he's turning away from, Mo- from Moses. So Moses only sees God as he's turning away from him, sees his backside. That's wrath. And that's, I think, why Ellen White says that human beings can only bear a shadow of God's glory. That is, we are so out of harmony with his mercy by nature. That's, that's what sin does. It puts us out of harmony with his mercy that we can only see his wrath, the shadow of his glory. We can't see his face. What that suggests is that because we're out of harmony, this is not God's mercy changing all of a sudden and becoming destructive, but because we're out of harmony with his mercy, it would be a terrible power to punish us, not because mercy had changed in in any form. It was still mercy, but because we're out out of harmony with it. Does that make sense? So I think that's what she means by she says, it is a terrible power to punish sin. That is mercy. It is a terrible power to punish sin because it is sin, because sin is out of harmony with it, and it will, mercy destroys it. Okay. Back to statement, uh, the statement, thoughts on atonement statements. Do you want to pause for any questions or observations? I hope I'm not putting the mute button on everybody. Okay, let's look at the middle paragraph. Justice is enabled to forgive without sacrificing one jot of its exalted holiness. What do we do with that? You see, in the legal construct, God's holiness is his abhorrence of sin. And and therefore, from, from reading those who hold the legal construct, and the one I've read the most, of course, is John Stott, um, from reading what they say, it seems to me that they, do, they see God's holiness as antithetical to his love. So, so when they read a statement like this, justice is enabled to forgive without sacrificing one jot of its exalted holiness, justice somehow can come over to, to the love side of God and, and forgive without the God's abhorrence of sin being sacrificed. He still abhors sin, but he, he somehow it's reconciled. That's, that's kind of the thinking that I think a, legal, a person in a legal construct would bring to this statement. When you think of any alternative to that in a different construct, maybe. Well, let's work through this and see if, if lights come on. Um, justice does what is right. It is right to forgive sin when the truth about sin and its consequences have been fully unmasked. I'm, I'm going to bring you to a, sta- uh, a story 
when we come to the next statement, statement number 13, that I think will help to clarify the difference between the legal construct and the construct that some of us call the larger view construct. Without Jesus demonstrating to us that sin, not God, leads to death, would we ever really turn away from it? If we, con- if we consistently think that God is the one who's going to kill us if we sin, if we don't repent, if we consistently think that, then our problem is to get in good with God. It isn't to deal with sin, isn't it? I mean, if, if, let's, let's just use this illustration. Uh, you have a son, and you have in the, in the garage, you have a whole shelf of different things, substances you don't want your son getting into because they're poisonous. They would kill him. And you say to your son, Johnny, you may not go into the garage. If you do, and if you touch those cans, you could get very ill and die. Johnny is too young to understand the cause-effect relationship of poison in his body. He can only understand that he's in trouble with you if, if he does get into the poison. And, and at some point, you catch Johnny uh, climbing up and reaching for those bottles of poison. How are you going to get across to Johnny that that is lethal? He doesn't understand the concept. He's never seen death. So you say to Johnny, if you do that one more time, I'm going to have to punish you. Now who's Johnny worried about being in favor with? He's being in, worried about being in favor with you. He's not worried about the poison. It hasn't registered that that poison is really poison. And I think that's the direction that many people bring to these statements. They see the problem with sin as a problem with God. And they don't see it as a problem with sin itself. I, I hope it is, because I don't know how else. As long as we... And, and this is what I'm trying to say here, I think. Would we ever really turn away from sin as long as we think that it's God who's going to punish us, not sin itself? We might get the message, stay away from sin because God's going to get mad and he's going to kill you. We, we might try to do that, but there's a disconnect in our reasoning powers. Is there not? Because we don't think sin is what's going to kill us. So it doesn't really get into our psyches that, we, that sin is lethal and therefore that is the enemy and we need to give it up. I think the more I study this and and see the interrelationships between sin and force, the kingdom of force that Satan has invented, uh, the nature of sin, what it really is, the layers of it, the more I see that, the more I think if we really knew what sin was and we really saw it for what it its worst attributes, what it leads to, what it what it does in people, uh, the abuse of people to one another, the 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 selfishness we show to one another. If we could really see that for what it is, we would probably turn away from it in disgust and horror. 
But I don't think we can see that until we see the opposite, and that's God in Christ. Because I think it's in light of one that we see the other. And I think, I think it's until our, our perceptions of God are raised to a new height and a new level, we can't really grasp it. Which is, is why the cross has a dual function. It not only shows the consequences of sin, it shows the character of the Father. So that we, we get both and at the same time. So, um, the, next, the final sentence in this paragraph, Or would we fear God, seek His favor, secretly turning away from Him in distrust, because we're afraid of Him, and still cling to see to our sins because we see God, not sin, as the problem to be solved. I, I'm trying to get into how what, what is really going on, and it's going on, unfortunately, in a subconscious level of the human understanding, is the way I see it. We don't consciously realize that we're afraid of God when we see Him as the problem and the one who punishes and destroys. But that's really what's happening deep inside our psyches. Okay, let's, let's deal with this thing. Justice and mercy stood apart in opposition to each other, separated by a wide gulf. I'm moving down to the third paragraph in the middle of that paragraph. And I ask the question, what drove mercy and justice apart? And the answer to me is in Desire of Ages 762, Page 14, I'd like to review that. It's uh, the paragraph quoting from Desire of Ages uh, in the middle of that page. God's love has been expressed in his justice no less than in his mercy. Justice is the foundation of his throne and the fruit of his love. It had been Satan's purpose to divorce mercy from truth and justice. Now, I used to read this statement until just now as he tried to claim they were in opposition to each other. But that's not what she's saying here. It was his purpose to divorce mercy from truth and justice. What does that mean? Using force, it seems to me he was attempting to change God's character and the foundation of his government force them apart. And, and I think of the, the statement in Patriarchs and Prophets where Ellen White says that, that Satan worked very hard to make us look so stinky, pukey, and rotten, use some multiple adjectives, that God would cease to love us. He wanted to change God. He wanted to put him in a situation where he couldn't stomach us any longer and, all right, I'll destroy them and abort the whole plan of salvation. So, so when she says that they stood apart in a wide gulf, she's saying that the, the result of all that Satan did in his attempt to divorce mercy from truth and justice was that to the universe, to the, to the universe looking on, it, it, truth and justice were separated by a wide gulf, which and this is the second time I've caught Ellen White really suggesting or inferring, it's, it's really an inference, that what our perceptions are are as real 
as if it were really true. And you have to deal, this is good psychology, right? <laughs> you have to deal with a person's perceptions of the reality as though they were real. Because to them, they are. Uh, another way of looking at that is to go back, uh, go back to page, in the same document, page two. And the, the last statement there, God could have destroyed Satan and his sympathizers as easily as one can pass pebble to the earth. How easily can you do that? Simply let them go, let it go, right? But he did not do this. Rebellion was not to be overcome by force. Now, wait a minute. We just said that he could do it as easily as letting them go. Letting them go is not using force. How come she says rebellion was not to be overcome by force? How come she says that letting them go would have been force? Because it would have been perceived. And she answers that question right at the end of the, this chapter when she says it would not have been clear to the angels that this was the inevitable result of sin. So their perceptions would have been, it would have been force. So instead of dropping it, instead of dropping it looked like throwing? So instead of dropping it looked more like throwing to the angels? It would have, Yes. Yes, it would have looked like he had uh, thrown them in front of a car. I used that illustration, by the way, on a, on a lady who was countering my theology. And she said she didn't understand what the difference was between God executing the wicked and letting them go. To her, it was all the same. They destroyed. It didn't matter which language you use. And so I, I asked her if, if if your son was small. She had a son who was my age. I said, if your son was small, uh, what would be the difference if he was running in front of a car and the car hit him and if you picked him up and threw him in front of the car? <laughs> um, and she flinched. She, I mean, it's only a mother could. You know, a mother is, is the nurturer. And as only a mother would in that illustration, she flinched. And to her, it was just horrible to think of of the throwing her son in the midst of the car. Bad enough that the car might hit him if he ran in front of it, but to throw him in front of that car uh, is is something much different. And I, I really think I have to put this in kind of as an insert. I think one of the biggest reasons our theology has gone the direction it has is because we do not relate it to real life, experiential kinds of thinking. Uh, it becomes very, a very esoteric, abstract, logical exercise within a very arbitrary kind of framework where cause and effect do not take place but where everything is arbitrated and controlled by God. And once you have that frame to bring to the picture, uh, it changes the picture, the substance of the picture. So, moving now, now uh, it saw, it, that is justice, saw one equal with God, bearing the penalty for all injustice and sin. And we're going to come to a statement where she says that, that justice demanded the, sacri- the suffering of a man. 
and Jesus gave the suffering of a God. Uh, this is the later statement that we're going to come to. And I think when we unpack that statement, this will become clearer. But for now, what did justice see at the foot of the cross in the death of Jesus? The inevitable result of sin? Yes. Sin, what sin, this is what sin does. And we're, what we're going to come to realize is that could only be made clear by God Himself. Mm. It couldn't be made clear by an angel or a human, perfect human being. Uh, but we'll be unpacking that later. So I, I suggest that justice saw Jesus dying as a result of sin with His Father's face being hidden. Okay, let's move to number 13. Uh, justice demands that sin be not merely pardoned, but the death penalty must be executed. God, in the gift of His only begotten Son, met both of these requirements. By dying in man's stead, Christ exhausted the penalty and provided a pardon. Uh, this, this makes it sound like God does it, doesn't it? When you have a penalty... We think of penalty in one way, and that is there's an execution of the penalty by an outside enforcer of, of the law. Um, so here's a statement that I think clarifies this and how she uses penalty. If you look at the, at the handout for today, I read this statement last time, but I think it bears reading again. And who executes the death penalty? We cannot know how much we owe to Christ for the peace and protection which we enjoy. It is the restraining power of God that prevents mankind from passing fully under the control of Satan. The, the disobedient and unthankful have great reason for gratitude for God's mercy and long-suffering in holding in check the cruel, malignant power of the evil one. But when men pass the limits of divine forbearance, that restraint is removed. God does not stand toward the sinner as an executioner of the sentence against transgression, but he leaves the rejecters of his mercy to themselves to reap that which they have sown. Every ray of light rejected, every warning despised or unheeded, every passion indulged, every transgression of the law of God is a seed sown which yields its unfailing harvest. The Spirit of God, persistently resisted, is at last withdrawn from the sinner, and then there is left no power to control the evil passions of the soul and no protection from the malice and, and enmity of Satan. The destruction of Jerusalem is a, is a fearful and solemn warning to all who are trifling with others of divine grace and resisting the pleadings of divine mercy. Never was there given a more decisive testimony to God's hatred of sin and to the certain punishment that will fall upon the guilty. Notice how she uses punishment there. She makes it very clear this is not something God does. God is not the one who stands as the executioner of the sentence against transgression. But he leaves them. He, he Persistently rejected, he withdraws. And yet she calls that punishment. And in other places she calls it the penalty. So, I don't think we need to be afraid of that word penalty. The penalty is inherent in the law. It, that if we resist it, just like the law of gravity, 
if you defy the law of gravity, you suffer the consequences. And if you def- if you resist the love of God, you are storing up all the passions of the human heart, which he talks about in this paragraph. And that's a testimony of God's hatred of sin. Notice how, where she puts the hatred of sin. It isn't, I'm going to whack you because I hate your sin. It's, I cannot manipulate and control my law of cause and effect relationships and keep you alive when you're trying to destroy yourself. I, I can't work against that. Sin does destroy, and I have to let it be. Does that make sense? Um, and, 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 of course, again, I'd, I'd like to remind you that, in my understanding, God hates sin because he loves sinners, and sin destroys those he loves. Just like a surgeon hates cancer that he sees destroying his patient. It's, it's that kind of analogy. So, let's look at that word exhausted, the penalty. What does it mean to exhaust? I looked it up in a dictionary and was surprised. I thought to exhaust something is to wear it out. And that is one of the meanings. But here in this context, it means to draw out or to develop completely. Jesus developed the penalty on the cross. He drew it out. He made it clear. And how did Jesus' demonstration that sin leads to death provide a pardon? Would we really want a pardon if we did not believe that sin is lethal? Because the Bible makes it very clear that God's nature is to forgive. Forgiveness is who he is. In uh, Exodus 34, when God makes passes before Moses and proclaims his name, he uses the participle in, in the Hebrew to define forgiveness. I am the forgiver, one who forgives. So this isn't making God forgiving. This is enabling us to receive forgiveness. This is for us, not for God. So I want to draw the two scenarios. I think we have just two minutes, and we'll try to get through these. Um, and we'll, what we'll do is pick up here next time. We'll pick up with these scenarios. But John, the first scenario is from the legal perspective. And uh, Bianca, why don't, why don't you hand her the mic? And why don't you read the first scenario? John hurt Frank's youngest son, and Frank is angry at John for hurting his child. John is afraid of what Frank may do to him for hurting his son, so in fear he begs Frank to forgive him. Frank says, Before I can forgive you, I must unleash my punishment and assuage my anger. So I will treat my eldest son the way you deserve to be treated. You deserve death, so I will put my eldest son to death in your place. In doing so, I will be inflicting the penalty on myself, because I love my eldest son, and and will thus assuage my anger. Frank does this, and is reconciled to John because of it, and can now forgive him. Okay, who or what is the problem here? John or Frank. The one who's been hurt is the problem. Isn't that how we deal with forgiveness? When If you can't forgive me, you're the problem. As society, I may have done something really heinous, but if you can't forgive me, you're the problem. We immediately put it on the one who we think should forgive us. Um, I've, I've been the 
the recipient of that kind of uh, problem. And what is forgiveness in this scenario? How would you define it? I, I think we won't take time to answer that, but these are the questions we need to think about. So let's, um, Adam, would you read the next scenario? John hurts Frank's youngest son because he believed lies someone told about, about Frank. Frank is grieved that John would so hurt himself by hurting Frank's son. Yes, he also grieves over his son's hurt. But in love, it hurts him to someone he loves re- rejects friendships. He wants to forgive John, but he knows that mere forgiveness would not heal the damage John did to himself. Of course, John feels guilty, but that is more because he fears he has made Frank angry and doesn't want to feel his wrath. John lacks a sense of the enormity of what he did to Frank's son, to Frank and even to himself. He fails to see how opposite his deed was to Frank's love for him and how destructive it was to John himself. So Frank talks it over with his eldest son, and his eldest son says, Dad, let me bear the sin John did against my brother. Let me bear the hurt he did to you and the hurt against himself. Let me show John that if you aren't angry at him for any personal reasons, but that the sin itself is evil and destructive to love and trust and ultimately to life itself, and that that is why you hate it. Let me show John your love and how I can save him from sin and its destructive consequences through winning him back to love and trust again. Frank's eldest son does this for John. How will John feel when he sees this demonstration of the consequences of his sin and Frank's love for him? Would it not lead him to repentance, to loathe what he did to Frank's youngest son? Would it not lead him to turn away from ever wanting to do that sin again? Would he not long for John's forgiveness and immediately get assurance that a friend who loved him so much would most certainly forgive him? That's my attempt to take the first, the first way, the first scenario is the way many people read these forensic sounding statements of Ellen White. And the second scenario is how I read them. Mine, it, it takes more explanation, doesn't it? <laughs> the explanation route uh, is a longer route. Uh, it does. It, it takes 66 books to unwrap it. <laughs> okay. Any, any last comments that you'd like to make or questions? I know our time is up. Okay. Why don't we have prayer? And we can go. Father, I ask that as we continue working through these statements, that you will give us clarity and understanding of how to read them and how to understand more fully and appreciate more fully the plan of salvation, the nature of sin, and your nature as you seek to save us from ourselves. May we come to appreciate you more fully as a result of our time together. In Jesus' name, amen.